All right, church, are you ready to go? Hebrews 6, get your copy of God's Word. Turn uh, with me to verse 1. The title of the sermon is Don't Fall Away. Don't Fall Away. I failed to make an announcement earlier. I don't know why it was written down in the list and I totally missed it. But there's going to be a time of silent prayer outside next Saturday from 1.30 to 2.30. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. We believe at North Roanoke that all of human life is precious from, from embryo to last breath. We believe that it is ordained by God, that it is precious in God's sight, and that it is to be valued and treasured. And so we're going to be right out here in the, the front of the parking lot area, and Becky and Tony Clark, um, I'm going to embarrass you, Becky and Tony. Would you stand for just a moment so people know who you are? That's Becky and Tony. They, they have coordinated a similar effort uh, at a sister church down in Charlotte, and they're going to be coordinating that effort for us. If you've got time, uh, availability next Saturday from 1.30 to 2.30, I, I think it's going to be a great experience of praying for, for mothers who are considering uh, what they're going to do, for praying for, for babies and for life. I'd encourage you to be a part of that this coming Saturday. Also, in our, our common, if you've been reading the news or watching the news, uh, Virginia is an interesting place right now, and uh, there's a lot going on in our commonwealth that is under the national microscope, and as you know, there's going to be um, some events going on in Richmond tomorrow, so we just want to pray uh, for safety, um, God's will would be done, and that he would protect uh, any of our brothers and sisters in Christ and anyone uh, who's going to be there for whatever reason. Uh, as, as those events unfold tomorrow. So those things are on my mind and heart before we dive into the text. And I just want to ask if you join me in praying for those things right now. God, we, we want to honor you. We just sang the word hallelujah I don't know how many times in the last couple of songs. And, and sometimes we forget even what that word means. It means all praise to God. God be praised. And we have so many wondrous reasons to praise you. Most especially, we praise you for the gift of life everlasting through Jesus. God, we, we want to be a people who honors you in what we say and what we do and what we advocate, uh, how we vote, how we petition our government. God, how we advocate on behalf of the unborn and on behalf of the aged. Lord, we, we ask that you would find us to be a people in this world who are truly salt. God, you've called us to be salt and light to preserve that which is good in culture. God, we pray you would help your church to be uh, light right here at 6402 Peters Creek Road, light in our workplaces, light in our local, state, and federal government. God, light in the lives of people who are weighing decisions that, Lord, we know you want life. And we know that you came to give life and life everlasting. So we praise you for that, and we ask that you would guide us as we endeavor to be your ambassadors in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So you should be by now in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I just want to give you a quick reminder that we are in a, an extended section in the book of Hebrews about the high priesthood of Jesus, that he is God's forever and perfect high priest. And because he's perfect, we don't need to look for a priest who's any better. And because he's forever, why would we look for another one? Because he's the last and final one. So if you want to belong to God, you want to get to God, you got to go through Jesus, the forever and perfect high priest. And he wants to make this argument by appealing to an Old Testament character named Melchizedek, who is a king and a priest. 
And he starts to do that back in chapter 5, and then verse 11 of chapter 5, he's like, well, I can't tell you all about that, because some of you just don't really care too much, and that bothers me, because you should care, because all of us shouldn't stay babies, we should grow up into Christ the head. And he's in the middle of that argument as we turn the corner to chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, so he's warned them that they shouldn't stay babies, and now he's going to tell us you need to grow up, and after you grow up, you need to make sure, or as you're growing up, you need to make sure that you don't fall away from the Lord Jesus Christ, because if, if you fall away from him, you fall into everlasting death. So hear now the word of God. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and of the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucified themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation is useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. I want to show you quickly, as quickly as I can this morning, because this is one of the most challenging texts in all of the New Testament. That's, that's the beauty of walking through the Bible as a pastor. You've got to preach the hard ones, and this is a hard one. But I believe there's two main things Jesus wants you to see from this text. First, we must build upon the foundation of the gospel. If we're going to grow in Christ, we've got to build on the right foundation. Secondly, we must understand the eternal implications of being close or near or around the things of God and the work of God and then falling away from faith in Jesus. First, we've got to build on the foundation of the gospel. The word in verse 1, therefore, is there for a reason. And it's referring us back to what happened in verse 11 through 14 of chapter 5. And he's saying, because it is important to grow in Christ. Because growing in Christ is not an option for a true believer. Therefore, what? We need to leave the elementary teaching about the Christ and not lay again another foundation or a foundation the elementary teaching about Christ, literally in the Greek, is this. It's the first of the word of Christ. The, those first things that you learn about Christ, the death, burial, and the resurrection of, of Jesus, these fundamentals of the gospel don't need to be laid again because they do not change. The only building we're building is the building of the knowledge of God. We're not building the Tower of Babel. To glorify ourselves we want to know and glorify Christ and if we're going to build that building then our lives have to be fixed on the foundation of the gospel so leaving 
Get this, this is important to understand. The word leaving in verse 1, leaving the elementary teaching or leaving the fundamentals of the gospel does not mean we leave it behind. It means we mature and grow by building upon it. That's care- We've got to be careful with that. You can't throw away the foundation and get what the author wants you to get. He's just saying, don't just stay there. You don't just go to vacation Bible school your whole life. Right? We're going we're gonna to go deeper. We're going to understand Jesus more. We're going to encounter life. And as we do, we're going to grow in the Word. And we're going to hear the Word. And we're going to know God more and more and more. Paul says this. No one can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You know, the world wants you to build a different foundation. The world wants the church. If y'all, if y'all haven't seen this yet, the world is attacking the foundations of Christianity. They want to tell you Jesus was just a good man. He was just a good teacher. But he didn't really say the things that he said about him having to take our place. You can just follow his good example and get in. And just be nice like Jesus and you'll be fine. That's a gospel, but it's another gospel. And Paul says, if anybody preaches to you another gospel, other than the gospel that I've given to you, let him be accursed. There's one gospel. There's one foundation. And it is on that foundation we build. If the knowledge of God is a building, we can rise higher and higher in our love and devotion and appreciation and understanding to God. Not by messing with the foundation, but by settling the foundation and letting the foundation inform everything else we learn and study as we go. That's how we, as the Bible says here in verse 1, press on to maturity. The word maturity actually means perfection. You say, hold on, I didn't think I could be perfect in this life. Well, you can be declared perfect by the blood of Jesus, and you can grow in the perfections of Christ such that how you look after walking with Jesus for 30 years should look more like, more like perfection than it did when you got started. Right? We're not asking you this morning, if you don't know Jesus, we're not asking you to come and give your life to Christ and go, Woo, I'm perfect. We're asking you to come and say, I am so not perfect, but Jesus is amazing, and I'm throwing my life on His mercy. God, do with me what you will. And if you'll do that, and you'll get plugged into a local church and hear the gospel over time, he will mature you and mature you and mature you. I think about finishing a nice piece of wooden furniture. You start with the rough cut wood, and you've got to sand and sand and sand, and you've got to go from the coarse grit to the medium grit to the fine grit. And once you get down to the fine grit, you're still not done because you've got to throw some lacquer on that baby, and then you've got to... Fine grit it all over again and then put some more lacquer. And that's the process. It's like the process of sanctification. The more you go into the Word, the more you dive into who Jesus is. You just keep seeing little more imperfections, little more impurities. And the Spirit of God uses that Word to make you more and more and more like Jesus. But one day, Philippians 3 promises, we will get the reward of our faith. We will get to be in the presence of the one who is perfect and perfectly know Him forever. That's how we press on to maturity. It means there's a direct connection between hearing the Word of God, obeying the Word of God, and becoming more like Jesus. In Ephesians 3.18 and 19, Paul tells us, he prays uh, that we may be able to comprehend. Did you know we got to know something to follow God? There's a movement out there that wants to make following God just all about what I feel. Well, I sang a song, I felt great, I'm good. It's not just about what you feel you got to know something about God to know who God is in order to experience God. They go together. So Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19, listen to what he prays. 
that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. you got to know so that you can know God who surpasses what you can know. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Knowing God and being filled with the presence of God go together. You cannot separate them. We must therefore press on to maturity by hearing and obeying the word of God. Now, here's something that's interesting. The word press on to maturity seems to emphasize what we do. Well, you know, I need to read my Bible. I need to bring my tithe. I need to be in Sunday school. All those things are great things. But what it actually says is let us be carried on to maturity. In other words, the, ones who, the one who is acting here is God. God is the one who carries us to maturity. In verse 3, look what he says. This we will do. We will grow up. We will mature in Christ if God permits. Now, is he like, well, I'm not sure if God's going to permit that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we will do it. And the if God permits is not about like, I'm not sure if God wants us to grow or not. Of course he does. He's revealed that in his word. It's a posture of humility. Do you remember, you remember the offering envelopes with the check boxes? Man, I brought my tithe. I read my Sunday school lesson. I read my Bible every day this week. But who gives the growth? God does. We don't bring our, our check boxes and say, God, you owe me something. God, because I did all these things, then I deserve something. Instead, we humbly present ourselves to God and say, Lord, to the best of my ability, I'm, I'm going to honor you with my life. But ultimately, you're the one who's going to have to move me on to maturity. I think about a sailboat. If a sailboat's going to go from one side of a lake to another, somebody's got to get in the boat and somebody's got to hoist the sail, but God's got to send the wind. Let God, the Spirit of God, Blow into the sails of your life by being around the people of God, hearing the word of God, and begging God to let you grow up in Him. Then, at the end of verse 1 and then in verse 2, we get three pairs of information that summarize what he means by the foundation of the gospel or the basics of the gospel. The first, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. The second, instructions about baptisms and laying on of hands, and finally, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We read first of repentance and faith. Unless someone has repentance and faith, he cannot have new and everlasting life in Jesus. You know what repentance is, right? It's to turn around. It's to go in an opposite direction. But it doesn't just mean to improve your behavior. It's a change in your worship. It's to repent from dead works. It's, re it's to repent from works that lead to death, believing that you can be good enough for God. It's to stop worshiping yourself and your own ability and to say, I have nothing that will count for righteousness before God. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to run toward God and say, all I've got is what you'll give me. That's repentance. I suspect the need for faith, faith toward God, is well established in a church like ours. None of us would say, well, I don't need to believe God this morning. Or likewise, you wouldn't be here. But what about repentance? What has happened to repentance in the church of God? Where has it gone? That to know God and to actually believe God means you will repent. That you will run in a different direction. Repentance is a non-negotiable. Jesus began His public ministry and He began it with these words. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn around. 
Peter, when he preached to the Jews after Pentecost, said, Repent and return so your sins may be wiped away. Paul, when he preached to the Gentiles in Athens, said, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere, who's that? That's everybody. All people everywhere should what? Repent. If you've never repented of your sin, if you've never run away from what you can do and run into the arms of Christ who alone can save you, today is the day to repent and believe the gospel. Praise God, when He saves repentant sinners, we get everlasting life, which means we don't have to face eternal judgment, which is described in the last part of verse 2. When Christ returns and the dead are raised, you'll be raised to everlasting life or raised to everlasting condemnation. You will either be judged by your works that are dead or by the work of Christ that gives life. And I would much rather be judged by what Jesus did than by what I've done. You can do that if you'll repent and believe the gospel. The only way to face eternal judgment is to repent before it's too late. When Paul preached that message in Athens... After he said that they needed to repent, he said, why? Because God has fixed the day. There's a day of judgment that's coming in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men. How? By raising him from the dead. If Christ is raised from the dead, he is who he said he was, and you are accountable to God for what you do with Jesus. The promise of the resurrection to everlasting life. The hope that we've found in Christ gives us confidence, no matter what the world says about us, to keep living for Him no matter how hard it gets. Now you may have noticed I skipped the words instructions about baptisms and laying on of hands. I did because even though this is fundamental and it's foundational, I'm not sure what he's talking about. You can come on Wednesday night. I've got a few different ideas. I'm going to share with you my leading thought tonight. But literally in the Greek... It says this, baptisms, plural, not washings, but baptisms of doctrine and laying on of hands. So it could be a reference to the variety of baptisms in Judaism and then the baptism of John the Baptist and then the baptism of Jesus and sort of the explanation, right, that Jesus is the baptism we need. We need to be submerged into Christ. We need Jesus to be our Savior. And all those other ceremonial washings, all the laying on of hands in the Old Testament to set people apart, they, they recede into the background now that Christ has come to fulfill them. Jesus is our righteousness. There's some other, other explanations that, again, we'll dive into Wednesday night. But here's what I think is going on fundamentally and foundationally here. To grow in godliness, we must understand at the foundation of the gospel that there are no other washings, there are no other options, there are no other things that someone can do apart from what Jesus has done. We've got to run to Jesus, and we've got to throw away, if we're going to grow in Christ, we have to throw away the idea that we can add something else outside of Jesus in order to be right with God. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Which means, if you get that close to Christ, but then you run away from Christ and say, I don't need Him, that's a big deal. It's a big problem. And that's what's addressed in verses 4 through 8. We've got to understand, secondly, if we're going to grow in Christ, we've got to understand the eternal implications of being close to the work of God and then falling away from Jesus. 
The primary question we have to answer as we interpret verses 4 through 8 is this. Who in the world is this author talking about? Is he speaking of real believers, genuine believers, who later apostatize from Christ and reject him? Or is he speaking of those? Do you see the word those in verse 4? That's not an accidental word. It's a very important word. Is he speaking of those who appear to be genuine believers for a season, but eventually reject Christ? After more hours of study than you care to know about, I think it's the second category. I believe what is in view are those who appear to be believers, but are not actually believers. Here's the good news. This, this passage has been unsettling to many Christians. Man, I, am I, can I not repent? Can I not return to Christ? Because I, I ran away from Christ for a while. If this passage scares you or unnerves you or makes you concerned, you're not there yet. Anybody who wants to repent, God's going to let you repent. If you get to the place that you don't care about repenting and don't care about hearing Christ, that's a problem. So if you're here this morning, we're, we're going to dive in here in a second, and there's going to be a lot we're going to talk about, but I don't want you to lose sight of, man, I, I want to run to Jesus. God will accept you, okay? All right. So having said that, before we go any further, we need to make sure that we have a sound understanding of what the Bible says about the assurance of true believers. Notice I said true believers. It's important. Those who are truly saved will truly persevere in Christ. That is the clear message of God's Word. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life and does not come into judgment. He is passed from death to life. In John 10, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Not even you can do it. One of my favorites, Paul says in Philippians 1.16, I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But what about those who appear for a while to have started so well? and then eventually want nothing at all to do with Christ. What do we make of them? Were they ever truly believers? John says in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They weren't authentic. Well, what about Hebrews? What do I do with this severe warning where it looks like they were believers and then they, they ran away from God? What, what is going on? Well, you've got to even read the whole book of Hebrews. You, even this one paragraph has to be read in the context of the entire story. And in Hebrews 7.25, the author's going to say Christ is able to save his own eternally. And if it's eternal life, it can't stop along the way. Is it everlasting life or is it not everlasting life? Christ is able to save his own eternally because of his inner, 
eternal intercession for those that he saves. Hebrews 10.39, Christians are, quote, not among those who draw back to destruction, but are among those who believe, resulting in the salvation of their souls. Hebrews itself is clear. True believers will truly be carried along by God to maturity. They will persevere in the faith. And it is their perseverance that is evidence of their assurance in the gospel. So when we read these warnings, we've got to keep the whole counsel of God's word and even of Hebrews itself in view. Whatever these verses mean, the pastor is not saying those who have truly been saved can be lost. But he is raising this question with each of us this morning. Are you truly saved? Do you really know him? Do you really care about growing up into Christ? Do you really want to persevere? Do you really want to endure? And here's the danger he's warning us about. He's not warning us about authentic faith. He's warning us about presumptive faith. A faith that just doesn't care too much about growing in Christ is likely not an authentic faith in the first place. And here's the difficulty For us, church, phony faith and real faith can look a lot alike for a long time. When my son was, I don't know, two or three, we wanted to get him some Lightning McQueen pajamas. But we didn't want to pay Disney prices, so we went on Amazon.com and we found some Lightning McQueen pajamas. They look great. All the pictures look certifiable. I mean, he's going to have a rocking set of PJs with Lightning McQueen on them. We got them shipped from China. It was Lightning McMean. And the car didn't look like Lightning McQueen. Like the the reality when we got it was not what was presented to us. It was close, and we let him wear them. But it wasn't Lightning McQueen. And my concern this morning in a congregation of this size is some of you might think you ordered Lightning McQueen when it comes to your faith, but... You don't have the real deal. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. In verses 4 and 5, the pastor speaks of those who had a faith that looked real. But then in verse 9, notice what he says. You've got to wait till next week. Come back next week. He says, of you, I am convinced of better things. I'm convinced of things that accompany salvation which is a huge interpretive clue that what he's talking about leading up to this verse, although these things look like salvation, they actually didn't have salvation. Are you all tracking with me? All right, so those versus y'all. I'm convinced of good for y'all, but make sure you're not one of those. So who are those people? I don't want to be one of those. I want to be one of y'all. I want to be somebody that's convinced. How, how, how can I be convinced and not one of those? And who are they? Those are they're these kinds of people. They're the people who get around the love and excitement of a church family. They experience some of the things even associated with salvation, but they still lack repentance and faith and works motivated by love. This here, church, is a warning about the danger of being near to the mighty and saving work of God and yet never becoming a genuine follower of Christ. What a tragedy it's going to be on that day when people cry out, Lord, Lord, and He says, depart from me, I never knew you. 
Yes, they had once been enlightened, verse 4, by the hearing of the word and the Spirit's conviction in their lives, but they never repented and surrendered their lives to Christ. They were around Jesus, and they were around Jesus' people, but in the back of their minds, they were just keeping their options open. They may have had a serious dating relationship with Jesus, but they never said, I do. They tasted of the heavenly gift. We read in verse 4, likely a reference to the gift of the Spirit. Though they never surrendered to Christ, they had gotten a taste of the comfort and the peace of God that God gives when He pours out His Spirit into a community of people. And they sat in the pew, they sat in the chair, they, they felt their heart well with emotion when songs were sung, but they never gave their life to Christ and said, I'll do for you whatever you want of me because you're that worthy of it. Did you know it's dangerous to attend church? It's, it's one of the most dangerous things you can do if you're lost. And you know you're lost. And then you just keep coming. And you're like, God's, God's going to be pleased with the fact I went to church today. God's going to be pleased that I, I did something in the offering plate today. You, you can't deceive God. God knows your heart. And the more you come around the things of God, and God is convicting you that more than anything He wants you to do, He wants you to receive and trust His Son, and you keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, Hebrews says you're getting into the danger zone of missing out on the opportunity to surrender your life to the only one who can save you. Did the pastor just say don't come to church? That's not what I said. I want to warn you, though, church, about what I call gospel inoculation. Make sure you got the real gospel. When you get injected with the real gospel, it changes your life at the root. But I'm afraid in America there's a, there's a, a near gospel. You know how they inoculate you, right, from a virus. They give you a dead virus. And I'm afraid we live in a culture and in a world where people have heard the gospel so many times and it's so close to truly surrendering our lives to Him and believing in Him and repenting from our sin. It's so close, but it's, it's just the nice Jesus. And we've, we've gotten infected or inoculated. We've gotten a virus that's almost the gospel, but it's a dead gospel. And we, we come to church and we smile and we say the right things. But are we really growing in Christ? Do we really love Him? Do we really, have we really given our lives to Him? Make sure that you've not been inoculated with the gospel, but that you've been injected with the gospel and you've truly been changed by Christ. When God convicts us of sin, He often gives us a preview of coming attractions. We get around God's people and the Spirit dwells there and we begin to sense, even before we trust Him, the, um, the amazing love of God, but we still have to repent and believe and we still have to produce good fruit. Those who get so close to God's salvation that God allows them to begin and know and understand the, the wonder of being part of a supernatural community, but then they fall away into the utter rejection of Christ will face everlasting consequences. Now you say, what is this falling away? It doesn't mean that you stubbed your toe and said a word you regret. Okay? Falling away is the specific sin of utter final rejection of Jesus. They have tasted the good word of Christ. They've heard the gospel, but they never tasted of Christ himself. 
There have been moments they've genuinely heard from God in the hearing of His Word. They've considered the powers of the coming future age, the age in which Christ returns and reigns and rules in righteousness, and they know Him as King, but they never bowed their own will to Christ the King. The thinking of the author of Hebrews is rooted in the Old Testament. Do you remember a few chapters ago we talked about Joshua going into the promised land? That's what's in the back of his mind. He's comparing those who get around the things of God but ultimately fall away from Christ with the Israelites who were right there when God took His people out of slavery in Egypt and they get to the edge of the promised land and when Joshua and Caleb say, let's go, they're like, eh, we're good. Just hang out here in the wilderness. Don't get that close to saving faith in Christ and back away. Just as Israel in the wilderness saw the pillar of fire and ate the manna and witnessed the manifestation of God's power and Moses' mighty miracles and received the divine promises of deliverance from their enemies, the readers, those who had departed and fallen away, they had seen manifestations of God's reality and His presence and power all around them in the congregation, the church they were a part of. Yet, as is still true today, Kellum says, external association with a given congregation does not guarantee salvation. What is required is a heart that trusts in God and the provision that He made in Christ. You say, what does that mean, Pastor? Here's what it means. Don't think because your name's on a church roll at North Roanoke Baptist Church and you haven't darkened the door in 30 years and then you pass away and you call the church and say, well, he was a member of North Roanoke, that that's going to do you any good before the risen King of Kings. It isn't going to matter one whit. Don't think, because I I got baptized as a nine-year-old boy and never lived for Jesus and really didn't care about Jesus, that when you stand before God and He says, why should I let you in my heaven? And you go, because I got wet when I was nine. That that's going to do you any good. When people appear to be a part of the family, but they fall away, they renounce Christ, they apostatize Christ, Verse 6 says, it is impossible to renew them to repentance because they crucify to themselves the Son of God. What a tragedy. Jesus was crucified so they would be saved and they'd just rather crucify Him again. This is the exact opposite of what a Christian would say. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Jesus isn't crucified to the Christian. It's the world that's crucified to the Christian. The world is dead to me because I am alive to the things of Christ. That's what it looks like to be a believer. A Christian delights in the reality that Jesus died for her so much that the world and all the world says she has to be in order to be popular or to be successful. All that is dead to her compared to the surpassing knowledge that she's been adopted as a daughter of the Father through the blood of Jesus. Now, I want to clarify. Falling away is a specific sin. It is the specific sin of departing from Jesus altogether. It is not falling into any old sin or even into a serious sin. 
This is not about your uncle's affair. This is not about many of the things that we've seen Christians fall into. It is about utter rejection of Jesus. Here's how we know that. Because the Bible gives us a plan to restore those who fall into serious sin. It's in Matthew 18. It's in 1 Corinthians 5. There's, a, there's someone trapped in serious sexual sin. And Paul says, put him out of the church. Did you know we're supposed to do that? If people are unrepentant and they're rebelling against Christ, that we're supposed to say, we love you. Now, obviously, we're supposed to go to them in love and say, we want, we want you to be restored. But if they keep rejecting, you're supposed to kick them out. That's not the, what the pastor says, what Paul says. Why? He says, hand them over to Satan. Maybe Satan will rough them up a little bit and he'll realize how good Jesus is. And what's interesting is most Bible scholars think that that guy that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 by 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is saying you need to welcome him back into the fellowship. He is repentant. God is bringing him back. He's, he's being restored. And so repentant. Some of you here, you've done some awful things since you gave your life to Christ. And you have never been able to find peace and joy again because you just don't think God can bring you back. He can bring you back. Do you want him? That he wants to bring you back. And so, now, the way back is repentance. It's not to slide in the back door and everything's great. The way back is to say, I am a sinner saved by grace. Let me tell you what I did and how awful it is, but God has forgiven me. And if God has forgiven me, then you can too. Are y'all here this morning? Some of you lack joy because you did something 20 years ago that's still gnawing on your conscience. You just need to repent and let times of refreshing renew you from the inside out. Jesus will do that for you. Well, how in the world does somebody fall away? What does that look like? It looks like somebody getting to the place they say, Jesus is dead to me. I don't need him. You remember Pharaoh and the ten plagues? Moses goes. Pharaoh says, no, there's a plague. And then Pharaoh's like, yeah, y'all can go. And then the next day, he's like, forget about it. You're not going anywhere. That happens ten times, right? Pharaoh had every opportunity to trust in God. And every time, he just hardened his heart a little bit more. And the warning of Hebrews chapter 6 is there is a point at which the heart becomes so hardened to the gospel that there's no more opportunity. And it's like they're putting Christ to open shame as they treat him with contempt. So church, getting close to the things of God, but arrogantly rejecting Christ is the final refusal of Jesus associated with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is the sin leading to death. It is not waywardness. It's not a lapse in judgment. It's not a, it's not a one night fling. It's not those things that you've done that you regret and can still repent of. It is the irreversible rejection of Jesus after having heard the gospel, considered the gospel, and said, I don't need the Jesus of the gospel. So to bring his warning to a conclusion, the author uses a familiar analogy, a field that receives rain. The field is us and the rain is the gospel. It's the word of God. If we hear the gospel and we bring forth vegetation that is useful for the church, for those around us, to the glory of Christ, then guess what? We will be saved. Ultimately, those who produce fruit are, and are fruitful in the kingdom of God, God has saved. But 
If the field produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless, which literally means counterfeit. And its curse or its doom is near. And unless this warning has its way in your life, those who are counterfeit on the day of judgment, notice what happens. They are carried off and burned. You say, wow, that's pretty severe. It shouldn't surprise us. It's all throughout the Bible. Isaiah 5, Judah and Jerusalem. You remember what Isaiah says? You were going to be God's vineyard, but you didn't produce grapes. All you did was produce thorns and briars. And when they come up, I'm going to carry them off and burn them. Mark chapter 4, you remember the parable of the soils? The seed of the gospel is sown everywhere. It falls by, by the side of the road and there's no soil there. So Satan comes and takes it. Then a little further away, there's some rocky, shallow soil and it comes up. But it comes up in a day and then it's dead in a day because it had no root. And then there's a, a field that looked like it had a root and it sprung up. But then all these weeds and thorns grew up. Nobody was tending the garden. Nobody really cared about growing up into Christ. And the thorns overtook it. And none of those soils was a real believer. Only the fourth soil, the soil in which the seed went down into a truly transformed heart and that heart brought forth fruit. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 18 and 19, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Listen, so then you will know them by their fruits. I call this the root fruit principle. If you've been changed at the root, you're going to bear God's fruit. And to bear God's fruit, you've got to be changed at the root of your life. So where are you this morning? Are you walking around in lightning McMean pajamas? If you're around the things of God, but you still don't have a heart for God and the people of God, if there's no growth in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, forgiveness, repentance, service, prayer, evangelism, that's a warning sign in your life. And some here this morning... If Christ were to return, you would stand before Him and say, Lord, Lord, and He would have to say, depart from me, I never knew you. God sent His Son and gave us His Word so that we could go from being nearly cursed, we're right at the edge of being cursed, but that we could miss His judgment by trusting in His Son. So this morning, if you need Jesus, if you're walking around in the wrong pajamas, spiritually speaking, don't delay Repent of your sin, believe in Jesus Christ, and go bear much fruit. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you, but we confess our love for you falls infinitely short of your love for us. God, we, I want to see a move of your spirit in this church that is unlike anything we've ever seen. God, I, I am begging you to revive the Roanoke Valley. I am begging you to show people who think they're Christians, but they're really not, that that is true of them before it's too late. 
I am begging you, God, to fill us up to overflowing with your presence so that we could bear the fruit of righteousness, of, of service and, and love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And God, that we could be long-suffering toward one another and repent of our sins toward one another. And God, help one another to see the the logs in our eyes and the specks in our eyes so that we could remove them and that North Roanoke would just be more and more and more like Jesus. So God, for those who need a church home so that they can plug in and grow in Christ together with other believers, let them come and and say, North Roanoke's my family today. For those who know right now, God, that the reason they lack so much joy is because they still need to repent of something. God, let them come and repent. And for those who don't know you, God, may today be the day of salvation. For the glory of Christ, amen.